Our talk this morning is on self-image. Which is another word for the ego. But it's a very useful term because we all have a sense of what a self-image is. It's not readily apparent that our mind operates on more than one level. But with just a little scrutiny, this can be plainly seen. Possibly you have, uh, probably everyone here has sometime or another watched someone while they're sleeping. And they'll scratch their nose and they'll turn over. And Maybe even when you were in high school and college, you may have tickled someone with a feather just to watch them scratch their nose. Pull the covers down, they pull it up. Obviously, there's a part of their mind that is not involved in the dream because that part of their mind looks after their warmth, turns them over, and so forth. Um, although uh, they also can communicate to some degree what's going on in the, uh, in the dream. Uh, I started to say, uh, if your husband, well, of course, in Santa Fe, if your husband would be perfectly all right. Uh, if your husband starts muttering, Marvin, Marvin, <laughs> should have been your wife, but Santa Fe would say, sorry. Uh, so let's say your wife mutters, Marvin, Marvin, and uh, so when she wakes up, you, you say, who is Marvin? And... Uh, she says, uh, well, uh, oh, Marvin was this big monster bird that uh, was going to come down and snatch up Santa Fe. But you were talking in such loving tones. There was, you know, uh, oh, I was giving him silent treatment. You see, it was, uh, it was an inner communication in my dream. And so we, sometimes we do get this sort of spillover from the dream life itself. But generally speaking, we can at least see those two divisions when a dream takes place. Now, what it, the, the song uh, that uh, David was singing indicated that it's all up to us. Now, someone might hear those lyrics and think, uh, that means it's all up to me, this little teeny frail body. I've got to do it all. I'm alone in this universe. And that there's no place for asking for help. But of course there's place for asking for help. And a self-image is simply the belief that we're nothing but this little body that was born quite painfully, lives a few years, uh, grows feeble, and, and dies. But because that's not what we are, because there is a part of reality that was not affected by the dream. That's just one way of saying it. Another way of saying it, if you would have put it into more uh, traditional Christian terms, would be God created the heaven and the earth. And although uh, we mess things up, this did not affect the perfect nature of God. But to put it in more metaphysical terms, Pure love, pure joy extended itself 
And this extension was God's creation. And it is true that a part of God's creation, a very small part, says A Course in Miracles, fell asleep, but this affected only a very small part of reality. Another way of saying that is only a very small part of our mind, of all that we are, is affected by this. And your real self, your real home, your father, mother, God, is as close to you as your own breath. Closer to you, in fact. Because your breath is within a body. But what is difficult about all this is that at the point that where most of us are, it seems as if we're having to choose between the known and the unknown. So we know this little history. We think we've learned a few of the tricks. We think we can uh, make our life uh, go to our advantage because of some of the rules that we've learned about human relationships and finances and health and so forth. Although frequently they, they, they fail, still we have uh, remarkable faith in what we have learned. We have remarkable faith in our own past history. And so now, when things begin to get a little rough, or for whatever reason, we begin to turn to the infinite. We begin to turn to that which is wholly kind. That which is completely peaceful. And that which is so simple that it can't even understand all this madness that we get involved in. Like a loving parent, it does not get caught up in the nightmare that the child is having, but so tenderly loves the child and gently awakens the child from the nightmare, but does not get caught up in the nightmare, does not believe that it's real, does not feel crushed by the circumstances within the nightmare. So, our Father, Mother, God, our Source, our Self with a capital S, whatever terms or words we, used to, or we, we prefer to use, watches over us as we sleep. We, this Adam that fell asleep and never woke up. But from our standpoint, still being mostly asleep, it seems as if all the, the books of truth throughout the ages are telling us to choose something that we don't even know. What is this infinite love? What is this thing called God that's so easy to either believe in or disbelieve? Neither of which makes any difference. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or disbelieve in God. It does matter whether or not you now wish to experience God. Because once that happens, all arguments as to whether or not God exists are just so foolish that you won't even be tempted to even get into them. It'll be like uh, overhearing uh, two children uh, discuss uh, whether or not there are people inside of cars making them go instead of engines. You see. There's no way you can get caught up in that. But it appears as if we're being choose, 
we're being asked to choose this this state that can sound quite scary and the ego can become very uh, caught up in theological and intellectual arguments about what this reality is but none of that of course matters because we aren't being asked to choose words like eternal and infinite even words like oneself or God we're asked to choose that part of that experience that we now have in our lives that's all we're asked to do. There's nothing fearful about that. There's nothing scary about choosing to not attack anyone in our mind any longer, to not criticize them, to forget to judge them for what they did. That's a very simple choice, and it's understandable. And there's no fear in it. We simply say, I think I'd rather bless this person and say to myself, they did the best they could given their history, given their circumstance, given their self-image. They did what they did. And instead of thinking that they, they knew better and acted contrary to their own knowledge, which when we think about is absurd, how could anyone know better and deliberately make a mistake? No one will do that. There has to be at least a lingering doubt that what they are choosing to do has some value or they wouldn't choose it. We aren't really being asked to choose the unknown. But simple love and peace and forgiveness. But what happens when people begin a spiritual path is this feeds into their self-image and a new self-image forms. Gail and I do um, a fair amount of marriage counseling. For which we don't charge uh, because we, <laughs> knowing uh, if anyone had seen our marriage over the years, uh, it'd be a real question as to whether or not we're experts in this subject. <laughs> So this is just our little gift, you see, having discovered that it truly is possible to love someone, to take their hand, and walk with them in peace. Although it took us almost 15 years to learn that that's so simple, we now enjoy trying to pass on a little of that ease and comfort to other couples. But one of the things that we've both noticed is that in a relationship where there is a lot of trouble, it is very often the person on the spiritual path that appears to be causing it. <laughs> because they've gotten all caught up in all these concepts and what's right and wrong and there's this whole metaphysical system that's being applied to the, to the spouse's behavior and there's all this strange language being used that the spouse doesn't know and doesn't uh, feels, you know, feels like uh, a, a new clique is farming that, that uh, he or she is not a part of. Now this, in this complication, this torturous thing that we do to ourselves all comes from one very simple mistake. 
and that is trying to apply the truth to this world. Thinking that we can look around this world and see confirmation of the truth. We can't. And as we've talked about so often and laughed about so often together here, there aren't spiritual and unspiritual flowers or spiritual and unspiritual foods or uh, all that kind of thing. It just simply isn't so. It, but it's when we get caught up in that that we can really drive the person we're living with absolutely batty. So unless a spiritual path is making your life easier and simpler and more peaceful and happier, whatever it is you're doing is not has nothing to do with the spiritual path. Just step back and remind yourself how simple it is. You just walk in peace. You love your brothers and your sisters. You quickly forgive them. And you enjoy yourself this instant without any worry about what's to come or what you just did or what you just thought. Now, a self-image is comprised of of traits, we call personality traits, things that we think of as strengths and things we think of as personality defects. If these are looked at very carefully, uh, then it's seen that these are quite arbitrary and they change according to the situation. So that, um, but for example, let's say picking up a stray dog. Is that a strength? We all know people who pick up stray dogs. Is this a strength or a weakness? You see how the context would determine whether it's a strength or a weakness? It maybe it would appear to the person that it's a strength at the time they do it, but later, when they see they have 42 dogs, you know, <laughs> they're now criticizing themselves for the same thing. These, the self-image is, is built up from... from uh, a pattern of, of old reactions that when we are free of release our joy and this is why teachers can be such good examples uh, my little boy John I bet you didn't know I had a little boy did you <laughs> I also have a big boy too he's going to listen to these tapes <laughs> I have a big boy too Great boy. Scott, you're a great boy. <laughs> he has no uh, spider history, you see. And that's why I told you that some months back he ran and told me that he had kissed the spider in the sink, you see. This was perfectly normal to him, you see. Um, Gail and I, uh, yesterday... Uh, don't ask me why we did this because I, I still don't know. It was between uh, it was between the Burmese python and a and a silver cake cutter, and uh, for some reason we chose the Burmese python to give as a as a uh, gift to our friend who had just turned fifty. <clears throat> Somehow it seemed, it seemed appropriate uh, turning fifty. <laughs> but we had to sneak the snake over to his house and. Um, so we had it in our house first. Very real friendly, nice snake. He's the one over at the pet shop in the DeVargas Center that's always escaping. 
So he's probably, you've gone in there one of the times that he, you know, they are escape artists and he's real friendly, he climbs all around you and licks you with, you know. <clears throat> he does not speak with a forked tongue. <laughs> Just has one, but he doesn't speak with it. Well, so we, we brought the snake home. Beautiful, beautiful snake. And, uh, we got it out. Uh, we had played with it. It was a uh, very, very snake, safe snake. Uh, uh, everybody assured us at, uh, at the pet shop that it had never bitten anyone, and uh, we had played with it there. So we weren't pay, paying much attention. Uh, there were several of us there sitting on the floor, and the snake was crawling all over us, and we got in the conversation, and suddenly we looked down, and John had gotten down on all fours in front of the snake, and the snake was going, and John was going, and they were touching tongues, you see. <laughs> and they were both having just wonderful fun see, doing this. Now, he, he had no snake history in his uh, self-image, you see. There was nothing there to tell him to respond with fear to the snake. So that's why he could do this. Now, I'm not, we, of course, told him this was probably not a good idea, as well as kissing spiders. I want you to know this, you know, we did point out that this is not a thing to do. Uh, but it indicates that really all that interferes with our joy, because an adult wouldn't have done that. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we bought the snake, when I took the snake out of the uh, box there at the pet shop, there was a guy that walked in the door of the pet shop, and I had the snake, and he was wrapped around me and everything, and he stopped and froze. And his wife was with him, and uh, she said, that snake's not poisonous. It, it, you, know, you know, it doesn't it just squeeze you to death. That's all. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. Uh, and the guy came over and told him the snake was perfectly harmless and so forth. But he couldn't help it, you know, because from, for whatever reason, this was a symbol. This was a part of his self-image, that he was afraid of snakes. Now, if he had had amnesia, he would not have reacted that way in all probability. Uh, this has had to be recalled and then brought into the present. This is, of course, absolutely of no criticism to the man because we all have that. We, we, we really do walk through the day as if it's uh, a minefield. and we, we avoid this and we avoid that. You know. uh, It might be of help, uh, as we talk a little bit more about self-image, if you would do a little exercise with me. And those of you whose self-image will allow you to close your eyes, <laughs> if you could close your eyes and uh, just very quickly look directly at your self-image. So you're going to go back now. And remember what you can remember. Memories are simply memories, and lack of memories are simply lack of memories. There's nothing more to it than that. So simply go back and remember what you can about your birth or after that situation in which you were reared. Anything that comes to your mind, watch yourself farming. Watch yourself taking on your present personality. 
see how you you played like any other one or two or three year old child and then a personality began to form. Now there were things that you would do and things that you wouldn't do. Now there was an emphasis. Now you now words like uh, dignity and manners and things like that begin to take on meaning. Notice yourself becoming proud of certain traits. Notice yourself being complimented for those traits. Maybe you can remember a time that you dropped some part of your personality or that you, you had a very close friend who did certain things or talked in a certain way and you incorporated that. Maybe quite unconsciously, but a year or two later you realize that uh, you always uh, bit your lower lip a little bit uh, between sentences or whatever it is your friend did. And notice how on this level, this personality becomes actually more and more rigid, more scared. There are fewer and fewer things that you are now willing to do as you look over the span of years up till now. Notice now you won't do now now you are not going to go on the rides at the, at the uh, midway anymore uh, anymore. Oh, there's certain rides you're not going to go on anymore. You you once got sick. Whatever it was, you see. Certain food, certain people now you stay away from. Notice this narrowing, narrowing, narrowing. Trying to find the safe qualities within your personality to hold to. You see. Okay. Uh For example, in my inventory, uh, I think of myself as someone who is uh, um, absent-minded. <laughs> Notice I became absent-minded right when I was in. <clears throat> so I can recall that the, the glorious day that Diet Right Cola hit the market. Uh, there actually was a day in which that happened. And uh, I think it was the first coal. I don't know if they still make it or not. You can see it's been a long time since I've bothered with <laughs> diet drinks. But uh, so I went in to Safeway and bought a whole case of Diet Right Cola. Came out, set it in the driver's seat, and I got in the back seat, closed the door. <laughs> and I sat there for about the count of three and suddenly realized what I had done. I started looking around to see if anybody had seen this, you know. I got out of the back seat and put the diet right coal in the back seat, and I got in the driver's seat. I don't know what I was thinking about, you know. So. so all these things sort of, you know, become part of our, our self-image. And this self-image takes the place of our self. That's what a dream is. So when we fall, not, fall asleep at night, we dream of ourselves in a certain way. It's not quite like the body in the bed that's dreaming. It's a little different. Sometimes it's quite different. 
And as we begin to wake up, there's actually a moment of struggle, which sometimes maybe you're very much aware of, especially if you've never seemed to have gotten enough sleep and you're having to get up at the same time each morning. And now there's this little struggle between the self that you are in the dream and the self that you are in bed. Now you seem to be choosing between two selves. Uh, Gail tells me that when she was a little girl, that whenever she was dreaming about horses, it was almost impossible for her to wake up. She'd much rather go back because her parents wouldn't buy her a horse. So she could choose either the self that had horses or the self that was not going to get a horse. So we can sense this. You see, a dream at night mimics what happened. If you want to know how this all started and how it continues, it's exactly like dreaming at night because that's a mimicry of the whole thing. It's very useful to look at dreams and realize that when you wake in the morning, as the Course in Miracles says, you simply pass from one dream to another. The difference is that in the, that the waking day dream, the daydream, is as close to reality as we can get in a dream state, whereas the dream at night is twice removed. Whereas the dream in the day is only once removed. So, what happens, for example, last time we talked about um, these relationships that we've seen where people have been together two years, five years, 18 years, 20 years, and suddenly they're trading, trading in each other like last year's car. And this is very shocking because we thought that they loved each other and we thought they were each other's best friends. And what's going on now? Now they won't even speak to each other. And there's obviously no love in their heart for this person they spent all this time with. And this goes on all the time. And we are always shocked by it. But what has happened, it's very simple, is that one self-image has been replaced by another self-image. So one person, in, there was a person in this individual's heart. The central person in this person's heart. There was no union there. It was just a person. It was just something that was sort of wrapped. The mind had wrapped itself around this individual. Another individual comes along who is more special to that person. In some way, they're more special. And so, the, that person is simply taken out of the mind and the other person is brought into the mind. And that's why there can be such surprisingly little remorse during a divorce, there can be a tremendous amount of trauma and and, uh, and drama and all all this stuff, but it's surprisingly little remorse takes place. Well, this is a similar thing to what happens with our own self-image. What we actually are is replaced in our heart by our self-image. We have actually fallen in love with our self-image, and people who begin a spiritual path are usually people who have begun to fall out of love with their self-image. They've now begun to question whether or not this is indeed what they wish to be and, and question whether or not this in, indeed is what they are. So let's look for a moment as to what sustains this. In the beginning, it appears as if our self-image is sustained by certain carriers. Have you read the labels? Have you ever read a label of food? It says uh, flavor enhancer, flavor carrier, 
all these things, you know, they're, they're trying to explain why they put this chemical in there, you see. Flavor, I don't know what a flavor carrier is. Isn't that a wonderful word, you see? But there seem to be little uh, carriers of our self-image so that a person can come back into our life and bring with them a part of our self-image. And it's now renewed because it hasn't been completely passed by. I'll give you an extreme example of this. Uh, a friend of mine brought me a prostitute once. A young girl who was a prostitute. Because that's the way he had remembered me. Not that, not that I had dealings with prostitutes, but that I would be very, that I would be very caught up with this, this young girl. Now, this is an extreme example, but it's, it's similar to what, in fact, happens when people come into our lives from the past or a certain personality type is in front of us at a party or something. Now, it's as if that is uh, the funnel to a whole side of our nature. And unless we are aware of it, it will, in fact, temporarily strengthen and activate that part of our self-image. That does not mean that the person from the past is necessarily to be avoided, but it is extremely helpful for us to notice that there are certain reactions attached to certain people so that when they come into our life, unless we are aware of it, we will fall back into that personality type the way they expect us to be. The answer, of course, is not to rigidly not be that way but to be at peace. When we awaken in the morning, you might want to notice this. In addition to thinking about what we're going to do during the day or what happened yesterday, there's another very subtle thing that the ego part of our mind does that sustains this self-image. Remember, the self-image is merely a limit on joy. It's merely the point at which we begin dampening down our joy. A thousand times today, God will whisper in your ear, just be happy. And you will start to be happy. And then you'll remember your self-image. And you'll say, I can't act that way. I can't be that happy in this situation or with this kind of person. And so you will begin dampening down your joy. It is theoretically possible that when you receive one of these calls, which is happening over and over and over, when your heart begins to lighten, as it is doing all during the day, if you were to just not dampen down your joy, the self-image would dissolve. That isn't going to happen because we seem to be most of us doing this in a very gradual way. And that's, that's perfectly all right. Usually gradual means less painful. But just notice that that's, that's what goes on. Now in the morning, notice that your mind will begin scanning your body. And you will ask yourself, how do you feel? In addition to what it is, what do I have to do today and what happened yesterday and all this kind of thing. There's nothing to do about that. That's the ego part of your mind going from the identity in your dream to this identity. 
uh, in psychology, some of this is referred to as reality testing. So as you sit there in your chair right now, there's a part of your mind that every once in a while will feel part of your body, will move in the chair just to make sure you're still sitting there. <laughs> uh, look at your watch to make sure you know what time it is because we have to be placed in time in order to be this thing, you see. And there's this reality testing. Am I still this person? Uh-huh, yes, I am. Uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm. Uh-huh, right. So, this, this goes on, you see. Because we aren't that. And therefore, the mind has to keep up quite an intense uh, re-indoctrination of this self-image. Because it's not natural to think of ourselves as this business that you just went through from the time you were born and you traced back. You see, what this little meditation we just did. You, you, it, this is not natural. Why do you have to be that kind of person? There's no real reason. And so your mind is constantly forgetting to be this kind of person. And the ego has to come back and renew all the fences and the little shrubs and everything. In public, when you're not by yourself, with other people, especially if you're with uh, people you don't know very well, notice that there is an even more intense scanning of this personality, of this self-image. So you, so it's as if you sort of step to the side and listen to how loudly you're speaking. Maybe you should speak more loudly, you think. Or if you're around someone who has a large vocabulary, you start worrying about your vocabulary. Um, or if, if you're around someone who's now talking about a particular subject, maybe you begin worrying a little bit about what you know about this and other kinds of subjects like that. Your, your, this part of your mind will scan how you're dressed, how you stand. Are you standing right, you see? Uh, the ego is always interested in, in, in not falling out of other people's good graces, except for some people who've gone to the other extreme, and, uh, and they're interested in falling out of everybody's good graces. <laughs> it's really the different side of the same coin. It's exactly the same thing. But just notice this. This is constant monitoring of the self-image. Once again, there's nothing to do about that. If you will simply become aware of it, it will begin to dissolve and you'll be happy in this person's presence. The happiness will begin to surface very gently, very quietly. I remember, uh, do you remember, in, uh, it used to be back, I guess it was in the 50s, the 40s and 50s, uh, women were supposed to stand like this, with one foot, one foot slightly ahead, you see. And I can remember, I can remember in high school, when the girls in high school began to learn this, there was a teacher that was, would teach them dancing and how to stand and so forth. And you'd be sitting there carrying, carrying on a conversation uh, with a girl, and uh, suddenly she would put her foot back, you know, you know like this. <laughs> this is a sort of a little unconscious adjustment, you see. Uh, the men, of course, would, do like this, or so I don't know what they do. They had their thing too, you see. Now let's talk about what we do internally um, to defend this self image. We talked about how certain things and certain people, 
seem to bring our self-image back to us, how certain situations seem to trigger it. So let's see what we do on a more internal state. One thing that we do, it's very, very common, extremely tempting, and that is to take sides against someone when we see that our brothers or our sisters are having a quarrel of some sort. And I've told you how Father Muktananda and Mother Teresa refused to sign the pledge uh, against nuclear war, against the arms race in India, because they said they wanted to love the people who were for nuclear war. They weren't going to take a side on that. Uh, now, what we often do is that we will have two friends who have gotten in an argument, and we will usually side with the person that we're talking with because we want to stay in that person's good graces. Our ego wants to stay in that person's good graces. This is a very subtle form of maintaining our separateness when we do this. Once again, there's nothing in particular to do this, uh, nothing in particular to do about this because it will appear as if there's a great deal of pressure being placed on us to do that. You will be told you're being you're being told about some outrage. Something is being deplored, and you're being asked to join in this and deplore it also. But if you will not enter it with your heart, you can do far more to heal the situation between those two people than if you get caught up in it and really think that one person is right and the other person is wrong. There's an AA technique in which um, people are uh, people, friends of the alcoholic. Uh, gather around the alcoholic. They come to the person's, uh, this is uh, before the AA person is in the program, and this is not advocated by AA, it's just that I've seen AA members use this technique. So here's a person. They're, they seem to be destroying their life and all the relationships from very heavy drinking. So a friend of that individual will gather other friends, and maybe four or five, six people who truly love this individual will then go to the individual and they will each tell one or more stories of what that person did when they were drunk. And what this causes the individual to do, if this is in fact a peaceful and good thing to do in that circumstance, because it's plain that it would not be a good thing to do in some circumstances, is it simply requires the individual to look closely at what's in fact going on in their life. Anything of the ego will dissolve if we turn and look at it. The only way that our ego is sustained is by our not turning and looking at it. There's nothing to do. If we fight it, we're not turning and looking at it because we wouldn't be fighting it if we had looked at it honestly. We would have no use for this business of siding with one friend against another. This would be of no interest to us if we looked straight at that. So it's because we don't look fully at it so anytime you don't like the way you feel, you don't like some emotion, you don't like the way you're behaving or the way you just behaved, there's really nothing more to do than just to turn your gaze and examine it very, very closely, but without any analysis. You just look at it in detail, like you might drop down on your leaves and, and look at the lichen that covers a rock this beautiful green moss-like stuff, and it's so gorgeous, and it's, cut, it's caught your eye. 
and you drop down on your knees and you look at this. That's the way you look at it. And the ego part of it will dissolve because it's insane and you don't want it. So this self-image, which is a way we act, a way we feel, a way we think, is like a broadcasting system within us. It's like a, uh, a pre-recorded program that's always playing within us. And this will hand things to you as you go through the day. Your self-image will present you with ways that you should behave in order to keep being this self-image. There are two ways to shorten the time in which you give this up. One is that your ego will hand you a thought and suggest that you think through this thought. Now notice this. You go through the day, you suddenly remember what so-and-so said. Or you suddenly remember this, this bill that hasn't been paid. And there's a whole fantasy to go, if I don't get this paid, they're going to cut off my credit. And da, da, da. There's, this whole, just, there's a whole thing. There's a thought, there's a premise there, and you're being asked to think it through. Well, what did they mean when they said so-and-so? And you're asked to think this through. Or what effect did uh, my action have? Or how should I deal with this particular problem? You're asked to think that through. You will save yourself time if you will not think it through. It's very simple. And how do you not think it through? By simply noticing that the ego has handed you a premise, and at our stage we cannot avoid that. We cannot avoid being handed these thoughts, these criticisms, these, these fears. But we can and do wake up in the middle of this process and if we will simply pause in peace, if we will simply remember our Father, Mother, God, then we will complete the thought because we realize it has nothing to do with our purpose. The second way that we can save ourselves a great deal of time in relinquishing this dampening of our joy that we call a self-image is by not acting out the thought. So, the suggestion, you'll get caught up in the thought and you will have thought it through and now the question is, what should I do about it? If you can pause before you act it out, then you will not get someone else involved in this and add another problem to it. So people add to their distress by getting on the phone and calling everybody up and asking them what should they do about this, we got some problem. You know, we call everybody we know and ask them what we should do about this problem. Now, this has now added several new problems. That's all it's done. Because each of these people, what we've done is we've appealed to their ego. We have not sought simple truth. This is not a matter of calling some up, someone up that we know will give us simple truth. Because simple truth is simple truth and it requires at most one or two phone calls. To get simple truth. It doesn't require 10 or 15 phone calls to get simple truth, you see. You just know someone's going to tell you the truth, and you call them, they tell you the truth. So what we're really doing is we're trying to justify our anger, justify our martyrdom, uh, whatever it may be. But what actually happens is, we're since we've appealed to all these people's egos, 
each of them has now given us a piece of advice. And now they're going to be very watchful as to whether or not we follow it. And each each person has given us a little different piece of advice. Isn't this true? And so now we've got a big problem, you see, because we're going to offend a whole lot of people because we haven't, because they're going to ask us, did you do what I told you to do? <laughs> and now we've got to lie and tell them, no, my arm dropped off and I wasn't able to do that. <laughs> The second and last way that we can save ourselves a tremendous amount of time because in every spiritual journey there are plateaus that means we're not making any progress we're just sort of staying where we are you can always know that you're on a plateau if something either very wonderful or very horrible is consuming most of your time. If you're if you're going through the day, and uh, there is this some wonderful something that's about to happen to you, or there is this awful thing that's happening to you or about to happen to you, like you're sick. You see, some people can only turn to God when they're sick. That's the only time they turn to God. There are other people who cannot turn to God when they are sick. So if you're spending a lot of time being sick. You're on a plateau. And the only reason that you're on a plateau is you have not decided whether or not you wish to move on. Because if you wish to move on, you will very simply find a way not to be sick all the time. And if you have to be sick in order to turn to God, you will find a way very simply and very easily to turn to God when you're not sick. Because that's your purpose. And the whole universe will conspire to help you in that purpose. Because the whole universe wants you to wake to your glory and your beauty and your home. Now, if we will, as we talked about last time, simplify the following areas in our life, we can turn to God more easily. Because, and I don't wish to scare you with this statement, you can be on a plateau for a very, very long time. And that's why many of the lessons in A Course in Miracles says if you Manage to feel peace for just one instant while doing this exercise. You will save yourself a thousand years. The plateau will not go away in and of itself. David Secord's song indicates that we have to decide what we want. Then the universe will pick us up and move us forward, but not as long as we're ambivalent. Because love will not force us to take a step that we're not sure we want to take. So the second thing that can help so much is simplifying. Simplifying how you eat, how you dress, your house, your activities, and your relationships.
There's no perfect, ideal way to do this, and there's no one to look to who's doing it the way you should do it. No one's doing it the way you should do it. You know how to do it. You know how, for example, to eat so that eating is not preoccupying your time and you can't turn to God because eating is something the ego loves to do. And it spends a great deal of time thinking about it and either resisting certain foods or going for them whole hog. Good Texas expression. <laughs> if your house is cluttered and this is disturbing you, if you're not turning to God because there's just all this chaos all around, there's something to do about that. If your activities are distressing you, if they, if they come as shocks, these appointments, these things you set up, these all these times you didn't say no to people. It doesn't matter if people scream at us. What does it affect if someone screams at you for not going to the party? Is the peace of God more important or is the party more important? Now, of course, the time will come in which each and every one of us will have established firmly and completely in our heart that above all we want the peace of God. And then we can enter any activity and we will carry the peace of God with us. But there may not be anyone in this room who's reached that point. At this point, there are activities that are disturbing your peace. And you must say no, if for no other reason than to show your mind that you're serious about this. So say no to activities that disturb you. It doesn't matter whether or not they, they disturb someone else or don't disturb someone else. If it disturbs you, simplify your activities. If there are certain relationships that drive you up the wall, temporarily step away from those relationships. You'll be able to come back to them. They're not going to be lost. You can step away from them gently. So those two things are possibly the primary tools of letting loose of this dark shroud that we've wrapped around us called a self-image. One is looking directly at it. And the other one is simplifying, simplifying, simplifying. And once this shroud begins to lift, you will have no pleasure greater than making each day a shining gift to your father, mother, God. To your brothers and sisters. It will give you so much joy. To know that how you're thinking. And how you're proceeding this instant. Adds to the awakening. Because the awakening has begun. It was predicted by almost everybody. And it has begun. The turnaround has begun. The children of God have started walking back home. But we can save our brothers and sisters so much time if we'll forgive them, if we'll not chastise them, if we will not question their needs, but simply see they have this need. They feel insecure. They feel uh, distraught. They feel sick. And not question the need, but meet the need. 
simply and quietly and compassionately. And this will be a gift that we give to God. Because at this point, most of us will not give the gift to ourselves. We do not think we're worthy of it. This self-image is believed so totally that we actually think we are that shabby. And so do it for your brothers and sisters. Do it for God. Do it to lighten the heart of the people who are around you. I'd like to close uh, with our joining together in a very simple prayer. And then um, John Huntress has written another song. You see, what we thought was going to happen was that, uh, that the little story in the paper would uh, <laughs> increase the size of, of the people who, number of people who came here. But as you see, uh, with, a, with a few people sitting out there outside the door, we've actually got enough seats. However, just in case, we have prepared a special song Guaranteed to reduce the size. <laughs> now it so happens that this song is also a perfect summary of uh, what we've been talking about today. Because it talks about carrying this old self-image with us. And how people love to carry this self-image and present it to us as a gift. Reminding us how we are, you see. So if you'll close your eyes, we'll first pray and then listen to John Huntress. There's some uh, logic to that order. I'm not sure what it is. But... I'm going to ask you just to say one simple phrase to yourself. You cannot say this sentence too often. Say it a thousand times every day for the next ten years and you will not say it too much. Just listen to it quietly as you say it. And listen to your heart so you will believe it. Say to yourself, My desire for God is very great. My desire for God is very great. Just silently now, say that to yourself very slowly and very peacefully. 